Hello and welcome to this edition of Ranking the Albums, the podcast in which the albums of famous artists are ranked from worst to best. This time I'm ranking the albums of Bob Marley and the Wailers, or as they are sometimes known, the Wailers. As the Wailers, the group were famous for popularising ska in the 60s, albeit only in Jamaica. They then popularised reggae and garnered international success in the 70s and 80s. Until 1974, the band were essentially the core trio of Marley, Peter Tosh and Bunny Livingston, who was later known as Bunny Whaler, confusingly, but only after he left the Whalers. When Tosh and Bunny left in 1974, the band's name officially became Bob Marley and the Whalers, although in actual fact the two names had been used interchangeably up to that point. The original band had released albums under the Bob Marley and the Wailers moniker until their breakthrough in 1973, when the albums Catch a Fire and Burnin' were released under the Wailers name. But the only artist on all these records is, of course, Bob Marley. Since his death to the general public and to the casual Bob Marley listener, he's essentially become a benign, benevolent figure. That's largely as a result of the misuse of his image and the attempts of marketing men to downplay several key facets of his complex character, identity and artistic mission. Firstly, there's Marley's devout Rastafarianism, a religion that developed in Jamaica that interpreted the Bible in a particular way. Rastas believed that the emperor of Ethiopia between 1930 and 1974, Haile Selassie, is the second coming of Jesus. Central to the Rastafari faith is the belief in a single god, referred to as Jah, who is deemed to partially reside within each individual. The Rastafari is Afrocentric and believes the African diaspora is oppressed within Western society. The West is commonly referred to as Babylon in Mali songs. This is contrasted with the promised land of Zion, which is Africa in this case. And of course, famously, Rastas wear their hair in dreadlocks and smoke the sacred herb of cannabis. Bob's image as a rebellious rabble-rouser is overlooked too. Firstly, as the voice of the ghetto sufferer who lived in the shanty towns of Kingston, and later as an international voice of third world concerns more broadly when he called for a pan-African political uprising. His vocal political views made him first a rebel in his politically divided home country, and then a unifier, and then a suspect for the CIA, and a target by politically motivated gangs. His cultivated ghetto sufferer image was complicated by a few things. Firstly, Marley was a mixed-race kid who received abuse in the Kingston ghetto in Trenchtown for being, as he termed it, half-caste. He didn't just grow up in the ghetto, he also grew up in the countryside on the northern coast of Jamaica. As a teenager, his mother moved to Delaware, and he became an American citizen a few years ahead of his big international breakthrough. He married young Rita, who was a scar success in, in her own right with the I-3s in the 1960s, who later became Bob's backing singers. Even with Rita in the band, Bob womanized copiously and openly and had an indeterminate amount of children. Bob Marley would therefore be an unusual international superstar, if it were not for the universality and brilliance of his most well-known songs, mostly available on the 1984 posthumous compilation Legend, Marley might have been remembered as a radical cult artist, much like Fela Kuti. In the 1960s, the Wailers were defined by success as a pivotal ska band, although this success was found exclusively in Jamaica. 
while Scar had been reasonably successful in, in Britain as the 60s wore on, the Whalers didn't break into the mainstream in the UK or even internationally until t- nearly 10 years after their first single in 1963. The Whalers were also initially more than just a vehicle for Bob Marley. The other two singers were big figures in reggae during and after their time with the Whalers. Bunny Livingston and Peter Tosh, the former a big-time Rastafarian, the latter an advocate and aficionado of the sacred herb. The Malcolm X to Marley's Martin Luther King, Peter Tosh's deep-chesty voice, domineering height and outspoken views would normally mark him out as a leader, but his volatility was infamous. He once drove a car while high and managed to kill his girlfriend in the subsequent brutal car crash. Musically, the trio's harmonies were sweet and impeccable, as were the crafted, rocksteady rhythms delivered by bassist Aston family man Barrett and his brother on drums Carlton. Family man was so called because of his endless capacity for procreation. Eventually, the Whalers caught the attention of Chris Blackwell, a white Jamaican who founded the legendary Island Records label. Having broken ska music in the UK, especially with Toots and the Maytals, Island Records had also established itself as a record label for folk, with the likes of Traffic, Fairport Convention and Nick Drake, as well as cutting-edge alternative rock like Roxy Music. But Blackwell, noticing the trend away from gritty music to smoother sounds within black American funk and soul, believed that what would be most potent in delivering Island Records their first superstar would be to find a soul rebel from his homeland's ghetto. In this sense, Bob Marley and the Whalers were the perfect act, and before signing, signing a contract, Blackwell advanced money to the Whalers for their first album with uh, Island Records' Catch a Fire. A second record called Burning followed in 1973. The momentum behind the Whalers continued as Eric Clapton had a huge hit with I Shot the Sheriff. However, the trio and the band's first incarnation ended abruptly at the end of 1973. There were some creative tensions, but the main reason cited is that Bunny and Peter simply didn't like the biting cold while touring the north of England in the winter. Bob continued the band in phase two, with Rita and the i3s producing a stunning string of hit albums. Natty Dread and Rastaman Vibration continued Marley's steady assurance in the studio and steady success outside of it. But it was Exodus, released in 1977, that finally catapulted him to international acclaim. His next two albums demonstrated Marley's range. The sweet and mellow Kaya was followed by the stridently political survival. Uprising was Marley's final album before his untimely death in 1981 from cancer. For the purposes of consistency with previous podcasts, I won't be counting 1965's The Wailing Wailers, which is a compilation album of singles that was merely marketed as their debut LP. Nor will I include Confrontation, which is an unfinished album released posthumously in 1983. So now I'll move on to ranking the 11 albums and uh, somewhat counterintuitively my pick for last place, number 11th, is The Best of the Whalers, released in 1971. First of all, confusingly, this is not a compilation album. Although it's their third album chronologically, it was recorded in 1970, so it's actually their first record. It was recorded and released by Leslie Kong, an influential producer of Desmond Decker, The Maytals and Jimmy Cliff. 
And unlike the rest of their albums where the Barrett Brothers provided the rhythm section, this record was recorded with Leslie Kong's house band, the Beverly's All-Stars. The result is a collection of tightly assembled ska that lacks the edge and definition of the later Whalers records. It just sounds like Desmond Decker's famous singles, but with different voices. It's not a bad listen by any means, but the Whalers evidently lacked control over the finished product. They were unhappy the album was titled and marketed as The Best Of by Leslie Kong, with Bunny Livingston rightly pointed out that you can't judge a band's best work until the end of their lifespan. At number 10, I've gone for Soul Rebels, which was released in 1970. This is the Whalers' first album to, rele- to be released outside of Jamaica. It was recorded with Lee Scratch Perry, the legendary pioneer of dub music. And of course, Perry's signature sound dominates this record. So there's prominent heavy bass, echoey vocals, and distantly mixed instrumentation that often sounds wonky. The near title track Soul Rebel is a fantastic opener with stellar background vocals from Tosh and Livingston. Unfortunately, it is by far the best track on the record. Tosh's No Sympathy first features here, as does 400 Years, which later ended up on Catch a Fire, but the later versions are far superior. My other highlights are the R&B-infused Rebels Hop and the Mysterious Reaction. But in truth, there's not a huge amount of contrast between the tracks to make this a satisfying listen. Most of the tracks were recorded over two days, so there is an element of this record feeling very rushed. And the band were just excited to have a bit more freedom creatively in the studio in comparison to their suffocating first album. Overall, Perry's production on this record is typically idiosyncratic and often makes up for the slight tunes. It's an enjoyable, if relatively insubstantial, album um, and an interesting collaboration from Jamaica's greatest songwriters and Jamaica's greatest producer. But like the best of, it feels like a producer's record, not the artist's record. At number nine, we have Soul Revolution Part 2, released in 1971. This is the Whaler's second record with Lee Scratch Perry. Quite why it's called Soul Revolution Part 2 remains a mystery since there is no Part 1. It's most notable for having early versions of songs that ended up on later albums, such as Put It On, The Sun Is Shining, Duppy Conqueror, Kaya, um, and Satisfy My Soul, which is titled Don't Rock My Boat Here. Consequently, the songwriting is a lot more solid than on Soul Rebels. However, in comparison to that record, Lee Scratch Perry's production is quite tame and lacking in uh, the eccentricities that usually make his work so perversely compelling. Um, While Soul Rebels feels like a Perry record that happens to have the Whalers playing on it, this feels like a Whalers record that that happens to be produced by Perry. So for me, this one edges ahead of on the relative strength of the songwriting, and I would say it's the best of their pre-island records. For number eight, we're going to jump forward in time a little bit to Uprising, released in 1980. This is Marley's final studio album um, released during his lifetime. This one is a frustrating listen because despite the radical sounding title, it's for the most part the safest sounding Whalers record. Coming in from the cold refers to the Whalers' return from exile following um, the assassination attempt on Bob Marley, and, and it makes for a decent opener. 
real situation is seemingly a comment on the Cold War with the lyrics really bleak and defeatist, which is quite atypical for Marley. The track Bad Card reverts to a ska rhythm, but it's played at a much slower pace, so it feels quite unusual. Work has some strange synths and guitar playing in a colourful arrangement that often offsets its rather forgettable core melody. Although a decent tune, uh, Pimper's Paradise sounds both sensual yet dejected, and it contains some of Marley's worst lyrics, where he attacks a woman for enjoying the high life, which seems a little hypocritical considering he also had a jet-setting party lifestyle. I think the track would have been much stronger if he had implicated himself. One of the two standouts on this album is Could You Be Loved, a rare combination of reggae and disco. The echo-laden guitar and clavinet groove is fantastic, and the song is full of great melodic lines on piano and from the i3s. The yearning chorus is just great, and and arrangement-wise this is absolute class and miles ahead of anything else on the record. The penultimate track, Forever Loving Jar, features a livelier Marley vocal. The percussion and the clavinet on this track are really good too. But my favourite is the closer, um, Redemption Song, which is performed solely by um, Bob Marley on acoustic guitar. And it's just a fantastic song which really distills um, his message. His guitar playing is gloriously rough and intimate. Um, It really makes you wish he recorded more songs like this without the Wailers. He probably had a great, you know, MTV unplugged record in him if he'd, if he'd survived until the 1990s. But the lack of reggae rhythm into the song is also notable. This is just Marley stripped back and direct. He quotes Marcus Garvey in the verses, but the, the song is clearly meant to apply universally, where he sings and addresses uh, his audience to fight for freedom. Won't you help me to sing these songs of freedom? And he's clear about his legacy too, because all I ever have is redemption songs. It makes for a really poignant conclusion, um, not just to the album, but to his career, really, and makes the case for the redeeming power of music. In terms of Uprising as an album, its problem is that its two highlights indicate the more interesting directions the album could have taken if Marley had gone for an album of disco-orientated bangers or folky acoustic confessional songs. And I think this album could have been much stronger and more interesting as a whole if he'd committed to either of those directions. (laughs) Instead, the tone of the record is oddly subdued and downbeat, the slick production making it feel quite hollow. Marley's melodies are also quite uninspired, but to be fair, he had been diagnosed with the cancer that would eventually kill him, so I'm prepared to be quite generous with this album. Aside from two outstanding songs, Uprising lacks the punch and power and variety of his best work, and I'm being pretty generous ranking it ahead of Soul Revolution Part 2. Now on to my number 7 pick, which is Natty Dread, released in 1974. Now this is the Whalers' first release without Peter Tosh and Bunny Livingston, and it's where Marley takes full control. The biggest change on this record is the introduction of the i3s as backing vocalists, who at times don't truly sound like they're fully bedded into the band, whereas on later records they sound absolutely integral to the sound. The opener, Lively Up Yourself, is is great, with a, a fine rock-steady rhythm, um, and otherwise there's so much going on. Percussion-wise, there's layers of organ, a brass section, a saxophone solo at one point. And the songwriting itself um, is a lot more stripped back and minimalist compared to the twists and turns found on, on Burning. The most famous track on the record is undoubtedly No Woman No Cry, 
but compared to the more famous Live at the Lyceum version, the Natty Dread version feels like an unpolished demo. It's it's not helped by the fact that the Wailers actually used a primitive drum machine on this track. And after the excellent rhythm section showcased on the opening track, the fact there's a drum machine makes this track feel so rushed, especially the tempo. The live version has a stately anthemic quality, um, and and that's just not present here. The live version is also seven minutes long, while this version races to a three-minute conclusion. So it's, it's, it's interesting to hear it, but it really spoils the flow of, of, of the record. The third track makes up for it, and is definitely my favourite. It's powered by some catchy, bratty backing vocals from the i3s. Um, them Belly Full, But We Hungry is one of Marley's angriest songs with evergreen lyrics like Cost of Living Get So High, Rich and Poor They Start to Cry, A Hungry Mob is an Angry Mob, and Forget Your Troubles and Dance. Side A concludes with Rebel Music 3 O'Clock Roadblock, which also has an angry feel. It's inspired by one of Marley's run-ins with the law, and at seven minutes long, it's one of the more strange, uh, progressive songs on the record. Lee Jaffa's uh, harmonica playing really gives the song an earthy quality, but it's also a little gratuitous. But what I really like about the track is its mesmeric, woozy organ lines, that, and there's a there's almost a campiness to the track that makes it really appealing. After a mostly strong first half, side B really falls short for me. The tone is generally much brighter and optimistic compared to the spikier side A, but songs like Bend Down Low and the final track Revolution have busy arrangements and some dissatisfying lyrics. Overall, Natty Dread is a decent album, but maybe lacks those big melodic love songs or unequivocal political songs to give it a sense of gravitas or cohesion. There's definitely a greater sense of playfulness in the arrangements, no doubt because of Marley's sense of freedom having separated from the other whalers. But it's simultaneously optimistic sounding and angry sounding, which just doesn't really work here. It's very much a transitional album. At number six is Survival, released in 1979. Now, this is probably Marley's angriest album, and all the better for it. Survival was released after stinging accusations that Marley, the political firebrand, had gone soft with his previous release, Kaya. In fact, there isn't a single love song on the record, and most of the tracks have global race politics at their core. Whereas previous albums had criticisms of the West and pro-Rasta philosophy, Survival is much more direct. The cover image features flags of various independent African states, but upon a closer look, there's also a line drawing of a slave ship with the album title overlaid on top. The opener, So Much Trouble in the World, is great, with world-weary sighing lyrics. It has one of Family Man's busiest bass lines, and it also has the high three singing slightly too cheerfully to bomb, 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 bomb. Zimbabwe supports the ongoing struggle for Zimbabweans to achieve independence from Rhodesia. On Babylon system, Mali dismisses the equality of opportunity arguments and equates the West inextricably with the evils of capitalism. Babylon system is the vampire sucking the children day by day. The title track is not dissimilar to Exodus and finds pride in the black survivors throughout history, recalling slavery and colonialism and explicitly calling for third world solidarity. 
Africa Unite is a pan-African call to arms. With its childlike melody, it rivals One Drop as the pr- prettiest track on the record. The latter song is named after the drum pattern that features in pretty much every Whaler song. <laughs> it's not all good though on this record. Ride Natty Ride is a particularly horrible, messy track. Ambush in the Night is a much more substantial song, lyrically reflecting on the assassination attempt that saw Bob being shot three times in 1976. I want to like this track for that reason, but the the actual tune I find is quite muddled, oddly. Um, Luckily, the closer Wake Up and Live has a killer groove and is one of the best tracks on the record, with its chanted chorus and almost Morse code-like rhythm and phased sound effects. Survival is a remarkable record for how outspoken and fiery it is, but it sometimes feels like Marley's desire to make political statements were at the expense of the actual tunes. That said, unlike Natty Dread, there's a real clear sense of why this album was made and why it exists. The fact that none of these songs were featured on the Legend compilation isn't just down to the politics. There's a notable drop-off in the quality of songwriting after the brilliant run of albums Rastaman, Vibration, Exodus and Kaya. So now we're moving on from the good records to the five really consistent great records by the Whalers. And we're starting with number five, Rastaman Vibration, released in 1976. Now this is the second album with the i3s, but it's a real improvement on Natty Dread and a refinement of the Whalers' sound in their second incarnation. Whereas Natty Dread felt a little rushed, this is really assured and a lot more varied and considered. It's also much angrier and all the more essential for it. The near title track Positive Vibration kicks the album off and it's noticeable how much deeper the bass feels compared to previous albums. The song structure of this track itself is is actually quite contorted and askew. It's catchy but it's also heavy with the organ really dominating. That's followed by Roots Rock Reggae, which has some stinging lead guitar riffs. It's, it's a bit inconsequential as a track, but it's, it's pretty fun. The third track, Johnny Was, is reminiscent of Freddy's Dead by Curtis Mayfield, especially in its subject matter. With a superb, incensed, gravelly vocal from Marley, it describes a stray bullet that kills a mother's innocent son. It was later covered by punk band Stiff Little Fingers to reflect the troubles in Northern Ireland. After the soulful cry to me, side A's closer, Want More reminds me of Funkadelic and also those vicious songs in John Lennon's early uh, solo career. It really is a great track. Side B starts with Bob yelling a strangled native Indian war cry um, with the whalers laying down uh, a fantastic chunky groove. The track is called Crazy Baldhead and is full of righteous anger at imperialists as Bob sings. Didn't my people before me slave for this country? Now you look me with this scorn, then you eat up all my corn. Build your penitentiary, we build your schools. Brainwash education to make us all fools. Now from a British perspective, the baldheads call to mind the far-right skinheads of the National Front, which makes the battle cry, we're going to chase those crazy baldheads out of town, all the more defiant. Who the cap fit is rumination on friendship and betrayal, and one of the most paranoid-sounding tracks in Marley's discography. The next track, Night Shift, tells of Bob's time as a forklift truck driver in 1960s Delaware, but it's probably the weakest track on the album musically. 
That's followed by my favourite track on the record, uh, the penultimate track, War. And I love the hi-hat on this track and the Felicuti-style horns. And this track predates the Pan-African themes of survival by, by quite a few years. The words are almost entirely uh, taken from a speech made by, by the Haile Selassie, the Ethiopian emperor. And again, it's the sheer force of protest against the oppression of white supremacy that marks this out as outstanding. The lyrics are so cutting. Until the philosophy which hold one race superior and another inferior is finally and permanently discredited and abandoned, everywhere is war. The final track, Rat Race, is a real state of the nation kind of song. It's a very pointed track about the impending civil war in Jamaica, accusing the government of being in cahoots with the CIA, among other things. The final lines seethe with anger. To see the human race in a rat race, rat race. You got the horse race, you got the dog race, you got the human race, but this is a rat race, rat race. With its heavier themes of class exploitation, imperialism, it's not a huge surprise that this album, along with Survival, is the best representation of the more militant Mali, which has largely been overlooked. But compared to Survival, Rastaman Vibration is a much more varied and interesting and satisfying record musically, and lyrically it's one of Mali's best. My next choice at number four is Kaya, released in 1978, which is a big contrast with Rastaman Vibration. This is an album of outtakes from the Exodus sessions in early 1977. Despite this fact, Kaya is an incredibly cohesive collection, which drops the heavy politics and Rastafarianism in favour of celebrating the simple pleasures in life, sex, drugs and dancing and the weather. Opening track Easy Skanking sets the whole album's unique tone. It revels in the joy of slow dancing and smoking spliffs, while the I3s implore the audience to take it easy, to take it slow. The title track follows, and it's another spliff song with a lovely ascending, then descending riff. But the album's highlight is is this love, which shows Bob at his most unabashedly romantic. It's one of his all-time masterpieces, with the Wailers' masterful arrangement and the I3's swooning harmonies just sensational. In contrast, The Sun Is Shining's minor key dubby shuffle makes for a great counterpoint. Despite Kaya being a song about the rain, and this song being about the sunshine, it is noticeable how much more ominous this track feels. Satisfy My Soul follows, which combines lyrical simplicity with a wonderfully controlled performance from The Wailers. Now, side B's openness, She's Gone, is relatively substandard, but the following track, Misty Morning, is superb with its syncopated acoustic strum, call and response vocals, punctuating brass and organ. Um, while Bob's singing can be even more laid back than the instrumentation on this record, his voice is excellent on this track. Crisis is probably the funkiest thing on the record, but it still fits with the album's tone. As Bob sings, no matter what the crisis is, live it up, live it up. The penultimate track, Running Away, features a hushed, vulnerable vocal. You running and you running and you running away, but you can't run away from yourself. It's quite a poignant meditation on his exile from Jamaica, with slow burning tension and plenty of room for brutal self-examination. The closing track, Time Will Tell, has a lilting guitar melody and a laid-back rhythm, but Bob's troubled state of mind is once again evident. Time alone, oh time will tell, think you are in heaven, but you're living in hell. 
I'm presuming he's referring to the fact he's forced to live in Britain or, or Babylon after the assassination attempt. It's a very bittersweet ending, I feel, and side B in general complicates the idea this album is truly laid back. Maybe it's laid back and disturbed, which makes it such an interesting and unique record tonally. The Wailers revisit previous songs on this collection, as mentioned before, there's the title track, The Sun Is Shining and Satisfy My Soul, which were all recorded for Soul Revolution Part 2. But within the context of the record, I think by revisiting these old tunes, it it infuses the album with a sense of nostalgia for, for Jamaica and for a more idyllic time before the assassination attempt. In fact, Bob is most angry on this album on Misty Morning, in which he seems to be railing against the terrible British weather. But on the whole, it's the best representation of a smiling, relaxed Marley. As Chris Blackwell noted, Kaya had a very summery, carefree feel. When the album came out, several reviewers said he'd gone soft. But Bob was feeling great at that time, and those songs reflected how he was feeling. Like with Exodus, the fact that Marley had only just survived an assassination attempt makes this music all the more remarkable. This is one of the most uh, consistent and cohesive of his albums, but it maybe lacks a little punch, which is why I've just had to leave it out of my top three. At number three, I've gone for Burnin, released in 1973. This is the Whaler's second record for Ireland and their second released in 1973. It really cements their position as invaluable reggae artists. And like Kaya coming straight after Exodus, it's a record that's exciting for creating a special sense of momentum in the group's output. It opens with the strident call to arms Get Up Stand Up. Compared to the sweetly elongated backing vocals that feature on much of Catch a Fire, here the wailers no longer wail but forcefully chant staccato. It's a track where both Marley and Tosh trade lead vocals, which gives it even more power. Bunny Livingston sings a rare lead vocal on the second track, Hallelujah Time, but that's overshadowed by the third track, um, I Shot the Sheriff, which, aside from its famous lyric, has irresistible harmonies and a ridiculously tight, snaking arrangement. The fade-out, which highlights the excellent, funky bass work of Family Man, is my favourite bit. That's followed by the gorgeous, sighing melody of Burning and Looting. The lyrics go, We're going to be burning and looting tonight, but to survive... It's sung with such sad resignation, rather than righteous anger, in a real contrast to the productive anger shown in the assertion of political rights on the opening track. My favourite track on this record, though, is Small Axe. The lyrics reference a proverb. If you are the big tree, we are the small axe, sharpened to cut you down. The song was supposedly written as a diatribe against the big three record producers in Jamaica, including Leslie Kong, that the small acts had to go against in order to have success. The puns work better in Jamaican patois, but the song works really effectively as an anti-authority song more broadly. The 2020 anthology series directed by Steve McQueen's Small Acts powerfully references this song. Whereas Catch a Fire contains plenty of production embellishments to appeal to a rock and pop audience, Burnin is relatively straight and honest roots reggae, apart from the final track, Rastaman Chant, which is a traditional choral type song with African style drumming and devotional Rastafarian lyrics. I think this album is great, it's a final testament to what made the original Wailers so impactful. They're all on great form and the harmonies throughout are superlative. 
it's a shame their original incarnation had to end because this record and my number two pick uh, are, are so good. And my number two pick is Catch a Fire, released in 1973. Now, the importance of Chris Blackwell in the history of the Whalers, and particularly this album, can't be understated. Blackwell had a specific vision of what he wanted the Whalers to be, having signed the band to Island Records. He envisaged Catch a Fire to be the first reggae album recorded and marketed as if it were by a rock act. And even though the raw songwriting material was excellent, Blackwell knew the power of the product and was determined to, on the one hand, not tamper with the essence of the Whalers, but on the other to refine their sound in order to maximise their appeal with those who bought records by the likes of Pink Floyd, The Rolling Stones and Led Zeppelin. By bringing in white musicians such as John Bundrick to play synth and clavinet and Wayne Perkins as guitarist, Blackwell beefed up the sound and ensured it wouldn't just be a typical reggae record. For what it's worth, it should be noted that the Whalers were fully on board with Blackwell's decision here. Curiously, Bundrick and Perkins were not credited on the album's sleeve. Presumably that's because Blackwell was conscious of any distracting criticism that this was not authentic reggae music, if anyone discovered a guitarist from Alabama had laid down the guitar solos. By listening to the original versions, you can tell these are genuinely excellent tracks, regardless of production tricks written by songwriters hitting their stride. The slower tempo compared to the scar of their previous 70s records often give the songs and harmonies room to breathe and to groove properly. The album opens thrillingly with Concrete Jungle, and I love the way that this track builds, the twists and turns of the melody, the way the biting guitar solos add to the tension that never quite gets released. It's just an amazing track. The lyrics tell of urban struggle and is perfectly pitched. The lyrics go, Cause life, sweet life, must be somewhere to be found, instead of Concrete Jungle, where the living is hardest. The second track, Slave Driver, is even more hard-hitting, in which Bob sings of the historic legacy of slavery, poverty, oppression and capitalism. The Catch a Fire refrain sounds more like the band want the Slave Driver to catch on fire. 400 Years is Peter Tosh's first song on the record where he also rails against colonialism and slavery. His second track, Stop That Train, is, is much more gospel-inflected and much richer melodically. Anchored by some fabulous slide guitar, presumably played by Alabama native Wayne Perkins, Baby We've Got a Date is a really curious country reggae hybrid. The experimentation doesn't stop there. Side B's Stir It Up is an update of the band's earlier 1960s single release. Despite being a simple love song, the track is sonically ambitious, with spacey, sonorous synths, wah-wah guitars, Bob's scratchy rhythm guitar, and one of Family Man's best bass lines. Kinky Reggae is a tale of a lewd rendezvous in Piccadilly Circus, and the band have a lot of fun here with its risky lyrics and slightly sardonic use of the British phrases right on and nice one. But the lyrically minimal and bluesy No More Trouble is my favourite track on side B, containing some beautifully sustained high harmonies from the I3s. Closing track Midnight Ravers is probably the least memorable tune here. Its percolating rhythm is typical of the album's style, but it's maybe a little repetitive considering what's come before. The joyous syncopation and polyrhythms do make this a satisfying closer overall. I think Catch a Fire as an album is a startling, consistent set, and it fits Blackwell's vision perfectly. 
Compared to the jaunty early 70s ska records, this is a tonally varied progressive album and a pure reggae classic. It's full of interesting arrangements without needing Scratch Perry's production wizardry. Its impact in, in launching Bob Marley's career can't be understated. With its original packaging resembling a Zippo lighter, it was pitched specifically to the all-important British music press, and the critical acclaim it garnered acted as a springboard for the whaler's credibility among tastemakers, and eventually led to a growing audience in the Anglosphere and, and superstardom internationally. But even this achievement is overshadowed by Marley's masterpiece, which is my number one pick, Exodus, released in 1977. It kicks off with the superb natural mystic, which fades in slowly, expertly, enigmatically, with spongy bass and dubbed-up hi-hat and drum kit. Eventually there are some bluesy guitar bends and an excellent horn section appearing from the mist. If Rastaman vibration was defiant yet cynical, this album starts with a resigned portent of doom and sorrow, which is in stark contrast with the more famous tunes on this record. The second track, So Much Things to Say, brings in the light relief of a sunnier key, and the I3s make their first appearance on the record. Its abrupt ending leads straight into Guiltiness, another song that rails against Babylon. Its downbeat lyrics go, Woe to the downpresser, who will eat the bread of sad tomorrow, and it's dripping with world weariness. Musically, it's a little lacking, but, but the heathen, the next track, massively improves the album's sonic palette. There's foreboding synths and fizzing spacey guitars and a demonic chanted chorus. This is transformative reggae, like what Herbie Hancock did to jazz with Headhunters. The title track, Exodus, closes the first side in epic style. The band is just so tight here. Family Man delivers a stuttering but unfaltering bass line as Bob endlessly repeats movement of Jar people into a vocoder. The power of this song is that the Whalers had to flee Jamaica for London after the assassination attempt on Bob's life. So this is the Whalers at their most visionary and psychedelic, Worlds away from his previous songs in terms of sheer sonic and structural ambition, it's a 7 minute 40 second journey worthy of its name. Now the wonderful thing about Exodus as an album is that it's in a lineage of albums such as Bringing It All Back Home, Bookends and Low, where side B is radically different from side A. After the heavy spiritual themes of side A comes the straightforwardly communal party song Jamming. Arguably an even better song is Waiting in Vain, which pulls off the endearing trick of sounding tender and romantic in its longing, despite largely being very self-pitying. But it really is a fantastic song with a fantastic build to that release in the post-chorus. Turn Your Lights Down Low is a proper baby-maker of a track. It's not the kind of track I'd listen to in isolation, but since Side B explores different types of love, whether that's logging, communal experiences, support, I kind of appreciate what Marley's trying to do here. The familiar opening bars of Three Little Birds then kick in triumphantly. Although it suffers for being the Marley track that everyone knows, everything about this track radiates positivity and the human spirit shining through. There is some speculation that the Three Little Birds are a reference to the I3s, but either way it's one of the most simple communal expressions of love and support in music. 
The melancholic, childlike piano melody is what really makes the final track One Love, People Get Ready, which um, was previously a Scar song released by the Wailers as a single in the mid-60s. Interpolating lyrics from the impressions people get ready, itself a song about religious deliverance from political and personal strife, One Love is a fuzzy song with hippie sentiments, but within the context of an album that started with the ambiguous tone of Natural Mystic, it's it's quite a satisfying closer. I keep saying on this podcast that what I love about some of the best albums of all time is that they often resemble a journey. Over the course of the album, it's like the prophet Marley has led us away from the portents of doom to the promised land where we can all get together and feel all right. I can't help but admire Bob's inner fortitude that after a harrowing experience of, of, uh, of the assassination attempt on his life and then the enforced exile in London, he almost immediately produced these songs of positivity and love. Happening on December the 3rd, 1976, the assassination attempt was specifically a bid to halt Marley's progressive role in Jamaican society. It came just two days before he was to stage a concert, an attempt to quell the violence infecting Jamaica. I think whenever you hear One Love or Three Little Birds and consider them a bit schmaltzy, you do have to consider that he was literally being shot at only a few months before the Wailers recorded these songs. As the Wailers guitarist Junior Marvin noted, Marley was happy to be alive. Religious and romantic, innovative and complex and utterly defiant, Exodus in its totality epitomises Bob Marley's character and spirit. Not as consistent song for song than Kaya or Catch a Fire, it has amazing range and Junior Marvin and the Barrett brothers and the I3s are all shining on this record. It's a fantastic record, just nudging Catch a Fire from the top spot by virtue of its emotional power. And that's all for my rankings. Um, Just to touch upon Confrontation, which is the posthumous album released two years after Bob Marley's death. It's a strange one because, like Otis Redding's posthumous albums, it feels quite chipper and surprisingly well put together, but that's largely as a result of the backing band. The Wailers and the I3s effectively finished off Bob's demos. Generally speaking, it's a better overall album than Uprising, despite not containing anything uh, that approaches that album's high points. The most famous track is Buffalo Soldier, which was a catchy single referring to the Buffalo Soldier regiments of African Americans who worked for the US Army to fight uh, the Native Americans um, in the 19th century. It's an interesting tale of the oppressed working for the oppressor to oppress others, but the Buffalo Soldiers are portrayed as a little too heroic. Um, There are some decent moments on this record, among some really bland tunes, but so I'd say it's for completists only. Now to quickly summarise Bob Marley's live albums. There are two released in his lifetime. There's Bob Marley Live, which was released in 1975, having been recorded at London's Lyceum, and it's fantastic. It has the definitive version of No Woman, No Cry, and an absolutely electric version of Trenchtown Rock, which is a track not featured on any of his studio albums. But it's a Marley classic with the immortal lyric, one great thing about music, when it hits you, you feel no pain. At just seven tracks long, featuring the highlights from Burning and Natty Dread, it's very accessible and the special connection with, with his audience, always implicit in Bob's songwriting, is very much evident here. 
Babylon by Bus, released in 1978, is a much more sprawling live album and has a more expansive sound reminiscent of Parliament and Funkadelic in places. And the tracks are much longer, featuring extended jams. In terms of compilations, uh, 1984's Legend is pretty essential, even, as I've said before, it's a sanitised and selective summary of Marley's career. The track choices can't be quibbled with too much, although choosing Satisfy My Soul ahead of Concrete Jungle or Natural Mystic feels pretty criminal. The subsequent release of Rebel Music in 1986 compiled some of his more rebellious tunes in a package designed to appease some of Legend's critics, but it feels really half-arsed, especially since you know you could just listen to the original records to get a full picture of Marley as an artist. And finally, just in terms of approaching Marley's discography, I'd actually say that Exodus isn't the best place to start, particularly since it has quite a moody opening. Uh, maybe Burnin or Kaya are the most accessible records. But on the whole, it's not a challenging discography to get through. Most of the albums are a good length. It's just a matter of how much you can stomach that reggae offbeat, really. <laughs> um, that's all for this time. Thank you very much for listening. Until next time.